Our scripture today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 32 uh, through chapter 5, verse 6. Again, open your Bibles with me as I read from Acts 4, verse 32 through chapter 5, verse 6. The passage will be on the screen behind me as well as the monitors on the side. Let's read. And now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that anything, that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, for they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them bought the proceeds of what they what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds? of this land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your, your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. In great fear, came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out, and buried him. May be seated. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given the gift of your spirit. That these words can be more than words. And you have given us your inspired word to be an authority and a guide for our lives. And so, Lord, I do ask that during this time we would have eyes to see what you have for us. We would have ears to hear what you have for us. And that we would leave changed because of your word. Oh, Lord, I pray that the Spirit would move. That Jesus Christ would be exalted. And you, Lord, would be glorified. pray in all this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. One general principle in life to follow is that fake things are to be avoided. Fake jewelry is not the best anniversary gift. 
And fake flowers are not the best first date gift. Fake, <laughs> fake wood does not make the best guitars or furniture or flooring. Fake cheese, fake chicken, and fake juice do not make the best diet. Fake maple syrup is delicious, but it is very unhealthy. Being fake extends to other areas as well, like business. A few years ago, Lisa and I were in need of a kitchen table. We were having all of our meals outside on the deck, and it was starting to get cold. So one day I, I drove by this store, and there, there were all these kitchen tables in the windows. And then on top of that, they had this big sign that said, Going out of business sale. Everything must go. And so immediately, I was so excited. I, I went home, and, and I told Lisa, This is our moment. I can't believe the kind of deals that they are going to have. And we love deals. So right away, we went to the store, we picked out a table, and we just got ready for our clearance. Everything must go. We figured they'd be desperate. But surprisingly, there was no deal to be had. And then strangely enough, the salespeople kept bringing us the catalog to order new stuff out of. And we were confused because we thought, I mean, that, wouldn't that be adding to the inventory and aren't you desperate to get rid of it? So we just kind of left and, and later on we mentioned it to our neighbor who had lived in that area for 20 years and she said, oh yeah, they have a going out of business sale every year. And sure enough, every time we drive by that store in the fall, we see the same sign, going out of business sale. It's an annual fake going on a business sale. But it gets even worse. Fake tears are unmoving. Fake apologies are uncaring. And fake promises are unconvincing. Fake remedies and repairs do not last. These things do more harm than good. But it gets even worse. In other areas of life, being fake can actually become very serious. Imagine if certain things we depend on were fake. Fake expiration dates on our meat. Fake officers. Fake technicians. Fake doctors. Fake pharmacists. Fake pilots. Would all pose a very serious threat to our safety and well-being. These things can do a lot of harm. But it gets even worse. The focus of our passage today warns us about being fake in an area where it matters the most. Everything else pales in comparison to this. Our passage today is a strong warning against being fake with the things of God. Of all the detrimental ways of being fake, this one surpasses them all by far. That's why we are warned so strongly against it. This is a strong passage. See, more than others, we cannot be fake like this. We cannot treat lightly what is infinitely weighty. So this passage is clear. We cannot be fake with the things of God, our relationship with Him and with His body, the church. Being fake like this is to be avoided with every fiber of our being. So this is what we learn by way of example. 
as we watch the early church in Acts chapter 4 and 5. And our passage unfolds in three stages. As we see the church in good health, in great danger, and with growing impact. We pick up this first stage in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. So if you haven't already, if you could turn in your Bibles and join me there at Acts chapter 4, verse 32, for the very first stage of our passage. And let's remember what has led up to this. In in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit came, and by the end of the day, there were 3,000 more followers of Christ. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John healed a man in the name of Jesus, and right away they preached a sermon to give God the credit, and by the end of the day, thousands and thousands more, upward of 10,000, became followers of Christ. The Spirit is moving and the disciples are growing and everything is exciting. And then in chapter 4, boom, it's all interrupted. The first wave of opposition hits the disciples. See, the rulers and the elders, the scribes and the high priest and his whole family gathered together the apostles and interrogated them and threatened them and tried to silence them. This was a wave of opposition. And at this point, the movement could have fizzled. But instead, we see the disciples gather together, pray, and emerge stronger than ever. Our passage picks up in verse 32 with a description of this vibrant community. We read, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. In the first stage of our passage, we see a picture of the church in good health. In a passage about not being fake, this first stage plays an important part. It shows us, in contrast to being fake, what the real thing looks like. And it's very similar to what we saw at the end of Acts chapter 2. And so the repetition, the fact that it shows up twice, reinforces how important this is for us to get. But the pictures are not exactly the same. The picture here fills in some of the details. Amazing. Imagine being there. There are 13,000 other believers. This crowd of faces that are so different from one another, from all the corners of the known world, and yet there is this sense of camaraderie with everyone there. You can tell that these people have something deep in common, even though they just met a few days ago. 
And then we see them looking out for each other. Caring for each other like they were all one of their own. We see a person struggling for food. And another says, have some of mine. People here and there are are struggling to make ends meet. Maybe some lost their jobs when they became Christians. But then someone steps forward with the resources they need. He actually sold some of his property to help them out. He actually sold some of his property to help them out. And perhaps at this point we're tempted to think, well, that guy must have the gift of generosity. But then another person steps forward. And another person steps forward. And another person steps forward. And another person steps forward. They had enough to share. And so they did. And remarkably, as we look around, we see them all looking out for each other. We see them all caring for each other so deeply that every need has been met. Every need has been met. Can you imagine that? They were caring for each other as if they were one of their own. And you would think such a strong community would easily become an island unto itself. But they had a much greater purpose than that. They had a much greater vision than that. Instead of growing inward, we see them facing outward, witnessing with power and grace about the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. We must resist the temptation, however, of letting our only reaction to this picture be, wow, good for them. See, this vibrant community can also be a growing reality in our midst. And I want to encourage you, good news, that as I read this passage, I see glimpses of you as I read it. See, I have personally experienced some of the things that are described in this picture. And yet we want to grow. We want to grow in these areas. We want them to be a growing reality in our midst. We want this vibrant community to flourish among us. And so this picture presents us with different areas to strive for. This church was not at all perfect, and we'll find that out later on in this text. And we're not at all perfect either. But it does present us with areas to strive for. And I see four in particular. Number one, they were unified in selflessness. Notice how it says their oneness of heart and soul is combined with the fact that no one said any of the things belonged to them was their own. You see, selflessness is the key. It is foundational to unity. See, imagine getting a group of people together to build a boat. One person says, I want to be the master builder. But then another says, wait, shouldn't that be me? I'm the best at this stuff. And then another person insists that the boat should be pointed, not round. But then others say, no, 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 this thing's got to be round. One person prefers for it to be painted yellow. Another person prefers for it to be painted crimson. And so they both start painting away. Two people are tugging back and forth at the circular saw. And two others are arguing about what it should be named. 
what's going to happen? By the end of the day, that boat won't float. And as silly and as outrageous as it sounds, isn't that often the picture that we see in the church? By the end of the day, that boat won't float. In order to experience unity in our efforts, we must first lay down our own interests and preferences, or else we will never get anywhere. See, selfishness is the great enemy of unity. That's why James chapter 4, verse 1 says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they, do they not come from your desires that battle within you. But there is a deep oneness, good news. There is a deep oneness oneness when people are united in saying, you for me. And that's exactly what we see here in the early church. There's a people united in saying, you before me. And it gets even more challenging In the early church, this selfless attitude even extended to their possessions. They even said, you before me, with their possessions. And sometimes we kind of want to shut this part out. It does seem a bit radical. And we can make it actually sound too radical. But there's two pitfalls here. We need to avoid making this too extreme, but we also need to avoid making this too easy. It's neither. First, we need to avoid making it too extreme. Later on in this passage, we will see that this was not enforced as a requirement for everyone. It was voluntary. It was all voluntary. It was not forced upon people. Something within them compelled them to do this. And that's what makes this so unique. You see, governments can force people to give their stuff up. But what about when you see a community that does it voluntarily? It causes you to say, what's with them? What makes them so different? And also, I think the key to understanding fully their practice is found by one word in verse 32. That's this. No one said that any of the belonging, that any of these things belonged to them. In other words, no one claimed that these things were theirs to keep. They might have still had these things in their own possession, but their attitude towards them had changed. Their grip was undone, and they could say, this does not belong to me. This is not mine to keep. Secondly, we need to avoid making this too easy. Because it's easy to say, this does not belong to me. But at the same time, our heart is still holding onto it so hard. So what I want to encourage us, what I want to, I want to give us a challenge by way of a specific application So this week, come before the Lord and think of something that means a lot to you. It could be an item or it could be actually a sum of money. 
and to be able to come before the Lord and say, Oh Lord, this does not belong to me. Help me to open my hands and allow you to use it for whatever you will have. And then pray that God will direct you and keep your hand open. And I think what we will find is that this is not burdensome, but liberating. Jesus is not being cruel when he asks us not to get caught up with the things of this world. He's freeing us. The second area we see them striving for was that they were not growing inward, but reaching outward. You see, as they cared so deeply for one another, as they loved one another so well, their vision did not collapse inward. But while they did this, they, they kept this outward outlook. And that's such an example for us that even as we care for one another, and even as we do things that are mostly focused on building one another up, that we can still cultivate this outreach outlook that all that we do can be a witness. Even when we're meeting just to encourage one another, just to build our relationships with one another in fellowship, that this can be a time when we are reaching those around us. It's about an outreach outlook in all that we do in our small groups, in our mom's groups, in our prayer meetings, in in everything that we do. Having this mindset that we are always a witness. The third area they strive for is that they were moved to action by costly compassion. The, the Greek word for compassion literally means intestine. So like we would maybe tell someone, I heart you, they're literally saying, I intestine you. And what it's referring to is something deep, something that you feel deep in your core. Only it's not just a feeling. I find it so striking that every time we see in Scripture that Jesus felt compassion, every time we see it, we see that it moved him to action. Every time Jesus felt compassion, it moved him to action. And then he illustrates what compassion should look like with that story of the Good Samaritan. And what we find from that story is that compassion is costly about going beyond some of our limitations. And so the question to ask with costly compassion is, what is the most I can do to love this person? What is the most I can do to love this person? The third area that they were striving for, or the fourth area that they were striving for, was that they were challenged by the example of servant leadership. We see, we see Barnabas, whose real name was Joseph, but Barnabas was his nickname because he was such an encourager. And that's exactly what we see him doing. See, he encourages the church as a leader by setting an example of giving. And then other people follow suit. And I just want to have, have him as an encourager encourage us that in the different capacities where we are leaders, 
that the best way to lead is to lead by example. Because we know that yes, there is a lot of things that need to be taught, but there is more that is caught than there is taught. And that's exactly what we see in Barnabas. The importance of servant leadership. So at this point you might be thinking, this is a lot. This is a tall order. An order that's beyond me. And if you're thinking that, that's good. Because if something is beyond us, it only brings us to rely on the one who is beyond us. If you're feeling overwhelmed by this, the best thing I can do is point you to Jesus. Because as I read these four areas, as I see these descriptions, they're descriptions that were supremely fulfilled by Jesus. He's the supreme example of selflessness. He's the supreme witness. He's the supremely full of compassion. And supremely the servant leader. So I want to encourage you that as we seek to make this a growing reality in our lives, to come to Jesus. And to grow deeper with Jesus. Because if Jesus is within us, if Jesus Christ is living within us by His Spirit, and these qualities are living within us. He gives us the power. See, this is a picture of the church in good health. And we learn from this positive example what the real thing looks like. And it's no wonder that it looks a lot like Jesus. The next stage deliberately contrasts this picture with a negative example. The second stage of our passage begins in chapter 5, verse 1. And what we see here is a picture of the church in great danger. See, Satan, we need to know from the outset that Satan is behind the details of this picture. And Peter recognizes that in verse 3. Satan is not ultimately responsible for what takes place, but he is behind it, helping it along. We have to see that this is a satanic attack seeking to destroy the church before it spreads. Satan knows that every time the kingdom of God moves forward, the kingdom of darkness is pushed back. So he seeks to stop this forward movement. The church is in great danger. But how? Remember, the first wave of opposition failed, which was pressure from the outside. So this time, he attacks the church from the inside. And this is how. We see a couple in the church whose names are Ananias and Sapphira. And at first, it looks like they're doing exactly what Barnabas did. We see them selling a piece of property and it looks like they want to contribute it to those in need. But then, then we see them talking in their home. Together they decide to keep some of the proceeds for themselves, but pretend to give it all. Who would know the difference? Let me say that again. Who would know the difference? Next we see Ananias by himself arrive at one of the gatherings of the church. And I can imagine the show he put on. 
going forward in front of everybody, ceremonially laying down the proceeds as if it were everything, as if it were more of a sacrifice than it truly was, as if it was more of an act of worship than it truly was, when in reality it was a show. And he would have pulled it off. But then something unexpected happens. The Holy Spirit gave Peter supernatural insight and he saw right through the act. We hear Peter confront Ananias with a series of questions. And we can assume this gave Ananias the opportunity to respond. Peter says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And then the final words, you have not lied to man, but to God. And with that, Ananias slumped over, and he was gone. He was dead. In those days, burial happened quickly. And that's what we see with Ananias. But as he was being buried, his wife Sapphira comes in. It's possible that Peter, at that point, didn't know what we know. We we saw them acting together. So he asked her as straightforward a question as possible. It demands a yes or no answer, confirming her part in the act or not. It's an opportunity for her to confess, but instead she does the same thing as Ananias. They were equally in this together. And we hear Peter ask her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? And then he prophetically states that she will share the same end as her husband. Notice, he does not call down judgment on her. He does not curse her. He just foresees what will happen. And with that, she died in the same way as Ananias. In both instances, it must have been an act of God. And this is, this is not a happy, clappy passage that was not a happy day in Jerusalem. And we have to grapple with it. But remember, we do not go around Scripture. We go through it. So as we grapple with this, we have to remember first what it's not about. This is not about eternity. It's possible that Ananias and Sapphira were Christians. In fact, most would say that it's even probable. This is before the days of the cultural Christianity that we know. But still, it's possible that they weren't. We don't know. Either way, that's not the point. Because we are not witnessing an act of eternal judgment. One evangelical scholar put it this way. God's temporal judgment on believers does not imply eternal punishment. Remember that this passage makes no statement concerning their eternal salvation or lack thereof. This is not about eternity. 
1 Peter 4.17 is not talking about eternity when it says that judgment begins with the household of God. And what that is saying is God will hold us, the church, more accountable in this lifetime because we are the ones who bear His name. This is not about eternity. And also, this is not primarily about money. Listen carefully to what Peter says in verse 4. The NIV captures it well. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? It wasn't about the amount of money they gave to the church. Other passages deal with that. But it would be a terrible mistake to make this text say, if you don't tithe, you're going to die. Yes, their sin involved money. And seemingly they didn't follow through on their agreed giving. Yes, their sin involves the greediness that is all too often tied to money. But the heart of their sin is not that. It is so much bigger than that. This is not primarily about money. So what is this about? In a word, hypocrisy. That is the heart of everything that goes on here. That is the emphasis of this passage. Peter says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And elsewhere, you lied to God. And elsewhere, you tested the, Holy, the Spirit of the Lord. In other words, they were trying to deceive God by giving a false impression. They were trying to deceive God by giving a false impression. And that's what hypocrisy means. Hypocrite was literally the Greek term for a professional actor. They were putting on a show before God. And in so doing, putting on a show before others. Putting on a show before God looks like empty religious acts. Going through the motions. It's, we, it's when we give a godly impression on the outside for the sake of appearances, but on the inside we don't mean it. It's when our lips say one thing, but our hearts say another. But God sees right through it. 1 Samuel 16.7 says this, People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Part of the problem is that Ananias and Sapphira were treating God like a big human. Like they could pull a fast one on him. But he could see right through their actions. And putting on a show before God inevitably leads to putting on a show before others. This looks like hiding behind masks. Not literally, but it's about playing the part before others. Saying the right things in front of the right people, but just disguising what's going on inside. Ananias and Sapphira acted one way in their home and another way in their church. As one person put it, They loved the reputation more than the reality. What it comes down to is being fake with the things of God. 
a relationship with Him and with His body, the church. And this gives us perspective on the decisive actions God took. You see, this was Satan's strategy to end the life of the church, to cause the movement to fizzle out in its infancy. You see, this community was the hub from which everything else would spread. This community was like the root of the Christian church. But what happens if the root is corrupted? We know from Scripture that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Had God not revealed their hearts, I'm sure this act would have been held in high esteem. It would have been positively reinforced. Just think if this attitude had spread and hypocrisy had become the defining feature of the early church. Can you imagine? Here's the question. Would a bunch of Christians being fake have turned the world upside down? If they were just putting on a show, would they be willing to be ridiculed, slandered, beaten, beheaded, and stoned to death for their faith? In Galatians 1.10, Paul says, in essence, if I were just putting on a show, I would have quit long ago. You see, I could pretend to be Spider-Man. But the moment I face one of his opponents, I'm going to take off that mask and say, whoa, whoa, no, no, no. That's not me. I was just kidding. But what if the church was pretending? What if the church faced the opposition and they backed off and said, no, 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 that's not me. That was just a show. Do we, so we need to see how serious this is to give us perspective on how decisively God acted. But it's not just an act for the early church. It's also a decisive warning for the church in every age right down to us. It says to us as strongly as possible, do not go down this path. Stay far away from it. God has no place for it in the church. And and notice what verse 11 does not say. It does not say. And great criticism came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. No, the response was not to look for hypocrisy in everyone else. The response was a healthy fear of God. It's about you and God. It's a healthy fear like the one described in The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, where the characters are describing Aslan, who represents Christ. When Lucy asks if Aslan is safe, Mr. Beaver replies, Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. This kind of healthy fear causes us to examine our hearts. It's about you, you and God. It leads us to ask ourselves the question, am I being fake with the things of God? And this applies on both a vertical level 
and a horizontal level. On a vertical level, it means examining our hearts to see if we are going through the motions with God. To see if we are saying one thing, but our hearts are saying another. See if we are doing things, but not realizing that God is not a big human and He can see right through our actions. And on a horizontal level, it means examining our hearts to see if we are putting on masks before others, to see if we are putting on a show. And I think this is especially important because I think this is a strong human tendency. And so by way of specific application, I want to encourage you that as you examine your heart, if you see if you see that tendency to put on the mask before others, I would encourage you, I would encourage you to start seeking people out that you can share your struggles with. It, I'm not, it's not healthy to divulge everything to everyone. But to keep everything to ourselves, to be isolated, is very not healthy. I just want to encourage you to seek that out. To find someone who you can actively seek transformation together. It's time to lay down our masks. The final stage of this passage is a picture of the church after these events. We read starting in chapter 5, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they were even carried out, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. What we see here is a picture of the church with growing impact. For the second time in Acts, we see that Satan's opposition gets nowhere. You see, Jesus himself promised to build his church and said that not even the gates of hell would prevail against it. Instead of the movement fizzling out, God protected the church and it emerged stronger than ever. Verse 14. Hear this, verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And we also see people carrying the sick into the streets so that Peter's shadow might pass over him, pass over them. The text doesn't comment whether this was right or wrong. The point is that God was working powerfully and the people recognized that there was something supernatural going on here. Something different than everything else. Something more than a game. Something more than a show. The church was authentically living in unity, graciously and powerfully witnessing to Christ, filled with compassion, 
servant-hearted and avoiding hypocrisy, and the world around them took notice. They saw that this was not a game, this was not a show, and it was not something to be taken lightly. In other words, those around them sensed the reality of the living God in their midst. And the same is true for us. May the world see the reality of the living God working inside us and among us. I'd like to invite the the Sacrifice of Praise team to come forward. And I just... This this text has uh, worked by the Spirit in my heart. So I just want to... uh, Let us all have a moment to kind of let this marinate a bit in our hearts. I want to take a moment for us to bow before the Lord and consider these questions. Examine our hearts. What am I holding on to with a tight grip? And what do I need to allow God to loosen in my life that my hand might be open? Am I putting on a show before God, going through the motions? Am I putting on a show before others, putting on a mask and playing a part? And I know this text is strong. And it reminds me of a strong warning that we hear in Hebrews 4.13. And I just want to read that. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. But it does not stop there. It does not stop with the strong warning. It goes on to give us an incredible truth. Therefore, therefore, Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Oh Lord, this is a